On November 8, 1987, an IRA bomb went off in the town of Enniskillen, Ireland. Gordon Wilson and his 20-year-old daughter Marie were buried beneath the blast, buried from the blast under five feet of concrete and bricks. Marie was severely injured, and just hours after being rescued, she died from her injuries. It was another death in a long and senseless string of violent acts in a war of hatred. But what made it, that was the aftermath of what made this act so memorable was the response of her father. He gave an interview with the BBC in the week following the bombing. One newspaper wrote, No one remembers what the politicians had to say at that time, but no one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said. His grace towered over the miserable justifications of the bombs. This is what Gordon said. While buried beneath the rubble, my daughter Marie held my tan tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those are her exact words to me, and those are the last words I ever heard her say. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Talk of hate and vengeance is not going to bring her back to life. She's dead. She's in heaven, and we shall meet again. I will pray for the men who did this tonight and every night, that God will forgive them. Gordon Wilson, like St. Paul, had a beautiful eschatology. They were both convinced of the certainty of life after death because of their profound faith in the reality of Jesus Christ and in the power of God's love. And within that conviction, they were both able to live out a very tangible and a very radical imitation of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand how difficult it is to love our enemies. And I appreciate how irrational it can seem to have mercy on those who hate us. And I know how painful it can be to forgive those who hurt us. But if this man, who is human just like we are, could forgive the killers of his daughter. And by the way, those weren't just words for the media. When he was released from the hospital, he began an effort for reconciliation between the two sides of the conflict in Northern Ireland. His efforts were so impressive that some of the men who were planning a retaliatory strike decided against it. And he eventually even met with the IRA members who planted the bomb that killed his daughter, and he personally forgave. If a man, just as we are, can do that, what prevents us from forgiving much lesser sin? Perhaps it has to do with our eschatology, or maybe our lack thereof. Eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrines and ideas about death and what comes next. 
This is something that was very immediate to the Apostle Paul. And in his final homily, Paul Apollosephus is about Christ, which is coming to the conclusion of his first essay in his letter to the Corinthians. Remember, we've been looking at the first essay to cross in Christian unity for the last 12 weeks, and we're coming to the end of it. In this homily, Paul writes a majestic ode to his understanding of life and death. He wrote, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This is so beautiful, in fact, there are a number of commentators who refuse to comment on it. it they, just, they say very little about it because it's so magnificent. But of course, those commentators are way smarter than I am. So in my simplicity, I'm going to try to comment. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was smart. Put that up and I push it down. We get off. <laughs> the homily actually runs from 3.18 through 4.7. But today we're just going to try to get through verse 23, right through that magnificent thing Paul wrote. So as he begins this last section of his first essay, he starts by wrapping up his entire argument that we've been looking at to this point. Do not deceive yourselves. If, you, if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Now this, is, this isn't saying anything new. But it is actually powerful and in reverse summation of what he has been arguing since the beginning of the letter. For the message of the cross is foolishness. Christ crucified is foolishness to us. So we run after our own understanding of God and our own wisdom of the faith. And Paul says, don't deceive yourselves. All of your wisdom and all of your understanding that does not look like this is foolishness to God. Now, did you, check, did, you, did you catch the reversal? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. Prior to this, right? Prior to this, everything we've been looking at, Paul would say, God's wisdom is foolish to us. Right? Now he says, our wisdom is foolish to God, which is an absolutely brilliant piece of writing. Because Paul always writes in what context? And what has he just been harping on that we looked at for the last two weeks? Judgment is coming, right? And so then he brings this remarkable theme of judgment subtly right back in to this reversal of what he's been saying. Oh, and by the way, all of you people who love to judge each other... Your wisdom has already been judged by God as foolish. And that's the only judgment that matters. So, bless you, honey. <laughs> and did you notice his ripping sarcasm? Which, see, sometimes what happens, 
we, we tend to read Paul and we miss a, a, a lot of this. He is often ripping in his sarcasm. If any of you think you are wise, of course they do. That's the whole problem with the Corinthian church. They all think that because of their amazing spiritual gifts, which many of them have, which we're going to see, and all of their spiritual knowledge, that they are perfect Christians. They know everything. But they are so not like Jesus Christ. That Paul has to somehow get their attention. He needs to get them to rethink their assumptions of what it means to be a good Christian and a perfect Christian. And so he uses sarcasm often. And it probably worked a bit. He actually uses this exact sarcastic device two other times. In 8.2 he'll say, those who think they know something, to the people that think they're really wise and born. And then in 14, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit. Because the Corinthian believers are just all about who's better than the other and who has the better gifts and, and on and on. So Paul says, if any of you think you're wise. Then he comes up with... I think his best line of all his writing, it's my personal favorite, be a fool. I love this. In fact, I have a promise for it. <laughs> this is my artistic interpretation of a modern day Mad Hatter. <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, and we talked about this all the time at Canaan. This is the stumbling block. This is the greatest obstacle on our journey as Christians to become like Christ. It's foolish. You don't forgive people that blow your daughter up. That's foolish. You don't love your enemies. That's ridiculous. You certainly don't turn a cheek when someone hits you. But that's just it. We have to play the fool if we are going to be like Christ. Try this. The next time you hear someone, not someone you know, not someone that knows you or someone you know, but someone, maybe you're in, at lunch at work and you listen to some co-workers or you're at a bar having a drink and you're listening to some people and you hear someone talking about how badly they've been abused or taken advantage of or stripped off or, or any other kind of hurt that they've gone through. Maybe a guy like Gordon Wilson talking about something that horrible happened to his children. And when they finish talking, lean into the conversation and say, hey, you should forgive that person unconditionally. If you're lucky, they're only going to look at you like you're a fool. If you're unlucky, they're going to verbally abuse you as a fool. And if they're having a particularly bad day, they'll probably even crucify you. 
And this was the problem in Corinth. Nobody wanted to play the fool. Nobody. It was all about me. And my rights. And what I need. And Jesus came and he said, well, actually it's all about the other. Like that song. That line when he says, go on, take my picture, go on and make me up. I'll still be your defender. You'll be my missing son. And I'll send out an army just to bring you back. God isn't into loving us because it's good for him. It cost him his life. He's into loving us because that's what love is about. The other. So for the Corinthians, division, judgment, exclusivity, and destruction of community were the hallmarks of their faith. Wow. And Paul says, in God's eyes, that is true foolishness. So why not embrace what you think is foolish, Christ crucified, try it. And there you will discover true wisdom. Be a fool, Paul said. He then supports this assertion with Scripture. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are pure. This is a quote, probably from Job and from Psalm. Paul, Paul was very interesting in how he quoted Scripture. He was also interesting in what translations of Scripture he used, depending on who his audience was. So sometimes it's tricky to find out exactly what he's quoting. But this is probably, the, he catches the wise in their craftiness, is probably the only New Testament quote from the book of Job. And that's probably Psalm 94, probably. B comments brilliantly on these two quotes and how Paul, Paul is using them. The first text is expressed in the imagery of hunting, in which the hunter uses the very craftiness or cunning of the prey as the means of the capture. The ultimate irony is that people are cunningly avoiding the God with whom they have to do, but God has used that very cunning to ensnare them. Thinking themselves to be wise, they are in fact fools. The second text emphasizes their ultimate futility. God knows their reasonings, that they are futile. The obvious point for Paul, therefore, is that the Corinthians are themselves fools if they do not take seriously this divine view of things, which is Christ crucified. Then Paul continues with an emphatic command. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All of your quarreling all of your divisions, all of your partisanship, all of your championing of one man over another is foolish. Why, Paul is asking the Corinthian believers, do you have such faith in the created when the creator is inviting you to have faith in him? Why? Isn't it funny how we do that too? How we put our faith in men and women and not in the creator. And then Paul pens this most spectacular piece of theological poetry. 
that not only gives credence to the command he just gave not to boast in men, but I believe this more widely expresses in majestic language Paul's entire worldview. Right here, I think he is explaining the entire worldview. Paul's theology of the cross, his eschatology, and his radical imitation of Christ are all because of this absolute conviction. Right here. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Now, I'm going to let Gordon Fee excuse me, sorry. I'm going to let Gordon Fee help us catch this. Absolute right. Because he does, I think, a wonderful job and I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. So it's it's an extended quote, but I think it's well worth our time. The list of all things begins with the three men around whose name the Corinthians are clustering in some form of jealousy and strife. This, of course, is the point of everything Paul has been arguing for. One is therefore not quite prepared for the sudden expansion of the list, which really does include all things. These five items, the world, life, death, the present, and the future, are the ultimate tyrannies of human existence, to which people are in lifelong bondage as slaves. No doubt. Absolutely. For Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus mark the turning of the ages in such a way that nothing lies outside Christ's jurisdiction. In the form of the cross, God has planted his flag on planet Earth and marked it off as his own possession. Hence, the world is it. <coughs> so also with the whole of existence, life and death, which are immediately placed into eschatological perspective, the present and future. Because in Christ Jesus, both life itself and therefore the future and death and the present are ours. We die. But life cannot be taken we live the life of the future in the present age, and therefore the present has become our own possession. For those in Christ Jesus, what things were formerly tyrannies are now their new birthright. This is the glorious freedom of the children of God. The beautiful new worship song this morning. Freedom is why I set you free. They are free lords of all things. We are not bound to the whims of chance or the exigencies of life and death. The future is no cause for panic. It is already theirs. In light of such expansive realities, how can the Corinthians say, I am a Paul or Apollos? That is too narrow, too constricted a view. Apollos and Paul and Peter and the whole universe is yours. You do not belong to them. They belong to you as your servants because you and they are Christ. And Christ is God. Wow. Magnificent. That's why I started today with the video I showed. I don't know if you could catch Bono's lyrics, but it was just magnificent. And it was a totally messianic song about Christ being born to sing. This 
is magnificent. To truly believe this can shatter all of our fear and allow us to live lives of true freedom. See, Paul expressed this same idea in Romans. Paul loves this idea. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height or depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. So, if that's true, if this is true, what? What? can cause us to worry. What in our lives right now is so bad that this isn't better than? And I know how bad the world gets. I have a little little soccer player. He's not he's not on the team this year because three weeks before tryouts he, he had a horrible stomach pain. Well, within 12 hours, he was in emergency surgery. He's got a scar this big now. His, his stomach had ruptured. How, how does that happen to just a little healthy boy? The world's horrible. We all have our stories. You know, you know a lot of my stories. But think about it. Gordon Wilson able to forgive the killers of his daughter because he was convinced of the myth. His daughter wasn't dead. Life couldn't be taken from her. <coughs> this absolute conviction empowered Paul to live like Christ and empowered Gordon Wilson to forgive the grotesque sin the death of his daughter. If this is capable of that kind of empowerment, I know this, I want it. And I know if we could be convinced of this as Paul was, I am convinced it will save us. I am convinced it will empower us to live like Christ and to love even our enemies. Even in our darkest moments. And I'm also convinced it will save the world around us. Amen.